I think it's just disrupt your own career and your own learning by forcing yourself to be in different physical environments and different learning environments. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a great conversation for you today, recorded in slightly different circumstances. For the first time, we've taken Coffee Pods live. Uh, I'm very lucky with the work that I do to get to interview leaders uh, live on stage all the time right around the world. And uh, recently at a conference in Sydney, uh, we set up the microphone and I had the opportunity to record an interview with Barbara Hyman. Now, Barbara is the CEO of Predictive Hire, a company that is seeking to bring uh, data and algorithms to application in how we hire talent and make the right people choices. Barbara's career is a really interesting one, and we delve into her experience in traditional corporate life in Boston Consulting Group, leading a really significant transformation and change project at REA, now into startup world as a first-time CEO in a rapidly growing business. Um, and what we talk and focus on is really the, the contrast to the expectations and the leadership demands of both those two different worlds. We also talk a lot, and Barbara's got some really phenomenal insights on strategies for yourself as a leader to manage those expectations and to be able to achieve the results that you're after, particularly in the face of rapidly changing uh, environments or significant expectations from investors, founders, you name it. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, who's Barbara Hyman? Barb Hyman, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. We were having a chat the other day and one of the things that I found interesting is both of us have Western Australia in common. You emigrated to Australia when you were relatively young. Can you take us back to that start of your journey and, and particularly, I guess, that period in transitioning from South Africa to Australia? Yeah. Um, so firstly, it's Rhodesia, now known as Zimbabwe. People who come from Rhodesia are quite parochial about the difference between one colonial outpost versus another. Um, but I grew up in a really small town, 3,000 people, one school, one traffic light. Um, and we left just three weeks prior to independence, 1980. Um, the then uh, President Mugabe has only just been exited from Zimbabwe, so a very long reign. And we moved because my mother was concerned that the family was going to separate and we would all go and live in South Africa and, you know, she would never have us around the dinner table again. So my family left. My father had no education beyond school. Um, he had been working in the family business, which was just a small grocery store, and frankly gave up a huge amount for us and because my mother nagged him endlessly for about a year. Um, we moved to Perth and I remember when we landed, and this was in the olden days when the Perth airport was pretty remote, um, I felt like I was in New York. It felt to me like the most glamorous, exciting, sophisticated place I've ever been. We lived on Hungry Jacks for the first three months. We'd never had fast food before. Um, and it was a massive awakening um, culturally. I still remember turning up at school wearing my white 
high knee-high socks and my smart dress looking like something out of, you know, an Amelia Jane book, and I quickly dismissed that the next day and turned up in the shorts and T-shirts that the kids were known for, but a big cultural challenge. And a pretty resilient time for your family, too. You went through some challenges in that, early in that transition, didn't you? Yeah, look, I think my dad, um, you know, he went from having a very comfortable life, not having anything to worry about, to uh, we were living on a quarter acre block to living in a small apartment with four kids and my mum who got sick quite soon after we arrived and unfortunately passed away a few years later. And so for him, the expectation of being the breadwinner and how to provide for the family, four children, one of whom is very upset about having left her friends behind and really found it very unsettling to move to Perth. Enormous cultural disruption because he was used to having people walking around and doing things for him to actually having doing things for himself. Um, and, you know, but for, to be honest, the benevolence of the community that we moved into, we wouldn't have had, and I certainly wouldn't have had the opportunities that I did. So if I went back and talked to Barb, newly arrived in Perth at that age and stage of your life, how old would you have been? I was 10. What so would 10-year-old Barb have told me that she wanted to do? Oh, probably rule the world, something like that. <laughs> um, look, at that stage, um, it was, it was, there was just such a cultural difference between Rhodesia and Australia, you know, d dealing with things like, I think it took me until I was in my 30s to address my friends' parents by their first name. There was just a big cultural adjustment and, and you know, it's incredibly liberating. I think we take that for granted in Australia, how relaxed and informal it is and how non-hierarchical it is. Um, you know, I came from a really different background. So I want to understand a bit about your career journey because it's a really interesting one to, to read about. You sort of started, you did a law degree, you, you kind of went down sort of that corporate route almost, Boston Consulting Group, you name it. Now you find yourself in a really entrepreneurial startup in, in predictive hire. I'm interested to understand what's been kind of the, the consistency of that journey. What's motivated you to, to pick the opportunities that you've chosen to throw yourself into? Probably subconsciously it's about learning. Is this something that's really going to throw me into a role or an environment that's different? I think I have a hunger for trying new things. I, I, I think consciously it's probably do the people who are doing this or the environment that I'm walking into, do they look like they're having fun? Do they look like they actually want to be there? Um, you know, I'm someone that wants to be around people or really inspired and motivated to be doing whatever they're doing. And so, you know, I want a piece of that. There's a couple of things I want to delve into about your career. One of them is um, you found yourself in the REA group at a time where you were charged with leading a significant cultural transformation. Can you talk to us about what you learned in that period about culture, both how to correct, but also what a great thriving culture looks like? Yeah, wow, I could talk for a long time about this. Um, so just some context, uh, when the current CEO joined the business, she'd been there for about nine months. Um, REA had been a really successful business, one of the early digital startups that had gone on to great success, but it had become a little bit, let's say, complacent and cosy. Um, and the, um, uh, the CEO that hired me really wanted to disrupt the culture because basically she could see ahead that we needed to do something order of magnitude different to really continue on that same growth trajectory. So for a business to have EBITDA and revenue growth, you know, combined to 20, 30% is really extraordinary in any business. And you're not going to do that by just doing price rises every year. So it needed to be something different. The challenge was that there was no case for change because the business was ridiculously profitable. And, uh, uh, you know, so it was how do you create that sense of urgency? And that really comes from leadership. You know, Tracy is a very driven, ambitious leader and she's done a phenomenal job leading the business to effectively double the share price in, in three or so years. Um, but it also comes from changing the people. I think fundamentally who you hire and who you promote is 90 
90% of your success. And the reality was the business was moving into a different paradigm. It wasn't just about traditional sales. It needed to be sales that was data-driven. So you had to evolve the capabilities of the organisation um, and that meant changing some of the people in the organisation. We had one in four were new across the business, one in four were new in terms of the leadership roles and that's a natural way that you evolve a culture. But fundamentally, REA is a place where it's technology driven and so that expectation is empowerment and autonomy. And so you cannot top down drive culture. It has to be a bottom up exercise. So culture is co-created. And the first thing we did as a team was to evolve the values. And Tracy and I both felt that if there's so much change and you're never going to curate exactly everyone to behave in the same way because that kills autonomy and creativity, you have to have some common foundations and values with it. So we went through a journey of, rather than what they had previously done, involve an external organisation to come in and try and define the values. We had someone in my team who was really well respected as an HR leader who created a whole movement effectively to define the values and it was very loosely managed by myself and by Tracy. Um, maybe some people won't think that, but I think actually it was quite loosely managed. And when they were finally launched at the Global Kickoff, which is this big sales conference um, that the business holds every year, immediately the team created emojis on Slack to reflect the different values and it's become um, an incredibly powerful way of shaping culture because it was about balancing between the heritage of the, of the organisation, which is very much around family and love, to one which is around performance and accountability. So, you know, own it became a really core value that was new to the business. And it, it obviously defines your recognition programs. It, it is part of how you're evaluated. Um, it's something that you're tested for when you're first recruited. So, you know, it has to be something that actually you see and hear and feel as you're engaging in the organisation, not just something that sits on a I board. like that because one of the things I think... Um Values is a really topical conversation right now. It always has been, but I think in the trust deficit that we're in right now, we're really starting to re-examine some of the bedrocks of culture. And I think one of the things we've lost is a lot, a lot of the substance behind some of the words we typically associate with values. Mm -hmm. you, know, you look at integrity, uh, a word that most companies would say, you know, sits on the values list. You know, that was Enron's number one value at a time where half of his executive went to jail for corporate fraud. You know, I think BP had safety at number one at a time where 12 million barrels of oil were spilling into the Gulf every given hour. So I'm interested in the language that you chose. Mm. Like, own it for me is something that's um, less ambiguous. There's mm. an understanding of how that anchors to behaviour. Mm. How important was that in your process in terms of that being able to then drive the behavioural change mm. that you actually wanted to see in your staff, the, mm. the language choice mm. piece? Mm. Critical. Um, we had a copywriter involved. There was a lot of conversation around the ELT table of you know, how do we just slow it down to a manageable number ended up being five. And it was the defining, I don't know why, but just some way of connecting the values so that they were memorable. Because you want it to be that if you ask anyone in the business on any day, what are the five values? You know, they'd just be able to reel them off. So own it, do it with heart, keep it real. You know, the idea was that was a bit of a connector through all of the, the, the values. I'd say there were some ELT that were more connected to one or other. Um, and it was also interesting having the gender lens as we sat around the table debating it. It was interesting that the women in particular were very focused, and I'll say this just because there were four of us actually, um, out of the, the nine, very focused on the performance side and the accountability. And it was interesting that the men around the table were more focused on how do we keep it real, which I don't know whether that says anything, but it was quite an interesting reflection when I look back on 
how each of us sort of affiliated with one type of value versus the other. And interesting as well, I think that importance of bringing the different perspectives together so that the end point is a result that brings together and, and kind of harmonises those different views and those different expectations that people have got for what they want to see. And look, it was also cross-country. So we had acquired a business in Asia about a third way through the program. Um, so we obviously wanted to bring them into the journey as well. And when you think about any acquisition, the best thing you can do is actually talk about values, like what's really important to each of us. And if you're actually co-creating them together, that's an incredibly powerful way to, 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 to integrate and to start to actually blend as, as cultures. And now you're in your role at Predictive Hire. Now talk to us about the decision to put your hand up and say, I want this job. Well, like most things, I probably didn't think about it very much. Um, you know, I think for me, there is a, a sort of a theme around just don't, don't overthink it, just wing it. So far it's worked, not, not all the time, but uh, part of one of the things, and I don't really know where it comes from. I think it's just not actually having familial pressure or other pressure telling me how I needed to be. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I don't tend to pause on anything for any length of time. I just, you know, I'll walk out of here and I'll move on to my next thing. So there's a great... Dis- Quick, quick sidebar, a fantastic term that a great mentor of mine shared with me, which is I grew up in BCG, ridiculous amounts of feedback. You know, every three weeks someone's telling you what you need to do differently and you learn to just, you know, appreciate the shit sandwich, which is let's just get to the heart of it and tell me what I need to do to get promoted. Um, but you develop quite a thick skin from that. And sometimes you really embrace the feedback, but sometimes you really don't necessarily want to take it on. So she invented this concept of the forgettery, which is this really big pot that sits right next to you all the time. And whenever you hear something that you think, I really don't respect what that person's got to say, or I've just had my share of it today, I'm going to lift it up, and it's an endless, bottomless pit. You just shove it in the forgettery and you move on. And that, I think, has helped me from a resilience perspective. Like, it's almost visualised. I can, I, can, I can feel it. Sorry, so why I'm in this role? Um, Look, I I think that people are everything, you know? I I think that it doesn't matter how clever your product is um, or, um, you know, how how much the market opportunity is if you don't actually have the people that are the right people in terms of mindset, culture, capabilities to deliver it, then nothing else really matters. So, and whether it's, you know, a consulting firm where people are your balance sheet, effectively they're your assets walking out every night, or, or whether it's at REA where you've got a lot more on your balance sheet but actually your people really what drive your innovation. I think it's a critical, the critical element of, of any business. And what always struck me at BCG and at REA was just truckloads of time spent in recruitment, as you will all appreciate, and just how biased it was. You know, there was a lot of self-reinforcing hiring in the tech sector, as we all know. Um, we all tend to, you know, um, overrate our, rec- our own experience, you know, and what's worked for us in the past when we recruit. Um, but uh, also pretty inefficient. You know, at BCG it was a million dollars a year in opportunity cost to hire the grads. That's a lot of money when you think about how much you would get from that if you deployed people in consulting. In, in REA it was 100 hours of one dev time to recruit one software developer. So when you start to say you're recruiting 50 to 80, suddenly that really adds up. And I think part of the challenge is few organisations really know their direct cost to hire and their indirect cost to hire. And so it's often not managed um, because there's just no visibility about it. So to work in an organisation where you're actually bringing data, data that allows you to make an informed decision, a better decision, a bias-free decision, and it obviously gives you all the benefits of speed, which I think in this day people want roles filled now, not in three months, um, was just too exciting to pass over. So what's guided, you've made a lot of hiring and firing decisions in your career, mm. what's guided those hiring decisions traditionally and what if anything's changed with what you've learned since you've come into predictive yeah. hire? 
I think I've read the Netflix culture deck about 50 times. I think it's about being honest and open and trying to have an adult conversation. That it's not about the individual, it's about the reality of the business. And, you know, I'm a deeply rational person. I tend to take the rational view before I take the personal view. So to be frank, I've had to learn how to have some of those conversations because as much as I know it's the right thing for the business and the individual's no, no longer the right fit for what we need, it's a whole different experience when you're on the other end. Um, and something that I learned from my former boss was, if you can imagine, you know, I have a 19-year-old and, and, and some kids younger, if you imagine that's your child sitting across from you and you're having that conversation with them, you know, how would you want them to feel? What's the most empathetic way in which you can have that conversation? I think I've learned over the years, and, you know, leadership is a journey that never ends, on how to actually have frequent conversations and what I call high-velocity feedback. Um, which goes both ways. But, you know, as you get more senior, you find people are less willing to give you feedback. So, you know, I need to try harder to create that safety for people to do it. And I like that you talk about both sides of that because there's one thing to give feedback, there's another thing to invite it and the importance of continually doing that, I think, we don't talk about enough. Yeah. I'm interested, what do you think is the most valuable bit of feedback you've been given? So just in terms of getting feedback, I'm a big believer in reverse mentoring, so I'm, I'm getting pretty old now. Um, and one thing I learn a lot from my, my kids is they're, you know, they're, they're unapologetic about giving me feedback. Um, and so if you can find a younger person who's just more curious to learn from you, who's willing to you know, go out on the limb and not be so PC because they don't work for you, that's a valuable way to get truly honest feedback. The most valuable feedback. So, okay, so someone said to me, I'm a collaborative thinker. Um, and so I think out loud a lot. And I had to learn, particularly at REA, where I had quite a big team, that some people get really inspired by that and love it, um, and they feel extended, you know, that we're opening up a world of possibilities. Other people, particularly more junior people, find that really overwhelming. And uh, when you're senior, you take for granted that, you know, I'm assuming we're just having a creative conversation, but actually people leave the room thinking that I've given them 20 things to do. And it took me a while to realise that and say, there's no action from this. We're really just exploring and I had to really ground it. Um, but basically I had to start filtering that not everyone wants to have the inspiring creative conversations. Some people just want definition. What are you expecting from me? What does this look like? When do you need it? And it, there's no good or bad. It's just difference. I'm interested, you mentioned before that uh, the notion that leadership's this sort of never-ending journey. What's this chapter now leading a startup with high growth objectives? What's that journey, this component requiring you to develop in a way that maybe you haven't had to in your previous chapters of your career? Look, I think um, I'm definitely in a seat bigger than, than me, um, but I, I kind of like that and I try not to overthink it too much every day. It's the context shifting. You know, as you get more senior, it's and particularly as you become a parent, you go home, you don't want to bring your stuff home, you really just want to be present around the table. So you have to put that in the forgettery as you leave work. Um, particularly in the workplace, you know, if I'm talking to an investor or a board member or team member, it's a very different presence that you need to have. It's a different kind of conversation and you have to adapt your energy really quickly. I think you learn to just do that more seamlessly, but, you know, that continues to be something I think as a leader you're, you're conscious of, is what's the conversation I need to have, what's the way in which I need to be now, without, without sort of dialing down the, the core of who you are. I think the other is that, you know, absolutely in an early stage startup, everyone is a founder. You know, I'm not a founder. I joined the business nine months ago, but I act like a founder. I have sleepless nights like a founder. I worry like a founder. And, you know, I'm passionate like a founder. And everyone needs to have that. And, you know, that's a, if, you're, if you're inviting people to tell you 
what the, you know if, if they're asking you what they need to do in order to solve the problem you know it's the wrong person and I think everyone has this wonderful idea of what it is to work in a startup um, the pace I thought REA was an insane pace the pace here is far more exciting um, so on a daily basis we're making changes to the product literally and you can do that when you're all in the room together and you've got coders who are able to convert that you know we don't have 20 years of tech debt we've just got a few years of tech debt so um, that ability to, to take risks and try things and then pull back and move sideways and move forwards is, um, I, you know, I, I just think you can, you got to find that exhilarating and you've got to have everyone in the team who behaves like that. It's a high octane way to live though, isn't it? In terms of the, uh, the startup environment then and sort of the mentality that you've got to have in order to be ready for that. How do you manage your own energy and how do you manage the energy of the people that you work with on a regular basis so you can keep at it at that level? Uh, look, I think as a leader in any role, whether it's a startup or elsewhere is, you know, people will, will, will sort of follow your energy. Um, I think it's really critical as a leader, you've got to show up. Um, it doesn't matter how you're feeling and that's the trade-off that you've made for accepting that, you know, that responsibility. It's not, it's, not, it's not a gift, you know. Someone has entrusted with you the accountability to really drive to an outcome and inspire a vision and lead a team. So you've you got to own that and do it. So I think part of the reality of this role is it doesn't really matter how you feel, you know, you show up. And, and I think part of what you're doing in a startup is you're, you know, you're modelling that energy and passion and belief. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I want everyone to leave the building feeling like I really believe in what we're doing. I really believe in where we're going. I believe in the team. I believe in the product. Because, you know, if they don't, right, they're really building it, then you're not going to have much luck. Uh, commercialising that. I think in terms of my own balance, um, I, I, I'm, I guess my kids keep me real. They're, they're particularly, my middle child is super cynical, so she always brings me down a notch. In fact, I've got to say, last night I was on the phone to her, I said, oh my God, I'm sitting down with Holly, I'm terrified. So she, she Googles Holly on the phone and she's reading it out and she's just one thing after another and she goes, Mum, I think you should just call her quits now. <laughs> So, um, so that Jeez. really helps. Sorry yeah. about that. <laughs> I had no idea I instilled such panic the night before this conversation. I'm so sorry. No, I said, I can do it, I can do it. But I want to ask you about those tough moments, right? Because you, that notion of, um, you know, being able to, to, to own it and show up is challenging to live sometimes. So when you're in those difficult times, you know, how do you, how do you call on your resilience? What are some sort of hacks that you use to sort of get yourself in the right state to give the energy to your people to be able to show up in the way that you want to. Any practical tips for how you do that? Yeah, um, I swear a lot. So I'm hoping someone's going to bleep this out if it's going on. Uh, oh, that must be the, the worst Australian in yeah. you too. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So I um, I read a lot. Like I don't watch any TV. Um, I'm a big podcast uh, listener. And for me, it's a, such a bubble. Like, I'm, I always work in a way which is a bubble, to be frank, regardless of the environment, so I have to force myself to just step out. So whether it's on the way to work or on the way home, I just try and create a different energy um, and be fed by different ideas. Not too removed from the space that I'm in, but, you know, somewhat, somewhat connected. Um, exercise, I think, as a senior person, you've got to look after yourself. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in... In, in the sort of, you know, sleep, food, exercise to to keep yourself healthy because you have a responsibility. You know, people have sort of backed you and I think particularly in a startup, it, it, people have given you money. You know, they've made a choice to invest in you and I think too often there's a sort of 
well, that's cool, they've got lots of money, I don't have to worry about it. But, you know, one of the things I did with the team a few months ago is I put up the photos of all the investors and I said, these are people. Uh, and it doesn't matter how wealthy they are, but they've made a choice and they've got lots of choices, let me tell you. They could invest in anything and they've chosen us. And do we feel that every day that they walk in, we're honouring that choice that they've made? You know, much like our customers, we need to feel the same level of obligations. So I just don't think any of us can take that for granted, especially me. Um, so that that's something I'm pretty passionate about too. I love that as a way of sort of making it very real and very personal, you know, sort of putting the photos up in yeah, that regard. Yeah, you know, and naming them, right? Yeah. You know, here's one guy and here's his mum and dad who put their super fund in it and... Um, you know, these are, yeah. these are kind of real people who've backed us. So you strike me as someone who loves a challenge and loves the, you know, the ability to think through either how you'd seize an opportunity or how you work through a tough situation. I feel like you've landed in the world of uh, recruitment, talent management, you name it, at a really interesting time. Like in terms of the extraordinary disruptive forces that are happening in this landscape, it's, it's fascinating to think about where we might be in five, ten years. Mm. I'd love for you to kind of talk through some of the trends that you're watching and keeping your finger on the pulse of that got you excited about the predictive hire opportunity to begin mm. with. Where mm. do you think we're going? Look, I think technology is definitely the future of hiring. That's one thing that we obviously see. There's lots of different HR tech businesses. I think organisations want to get closer to talent and talent wants to get closer to organisations. So how do you do that in a way that feels real and authentic and experiential? I think that people are recognising that consumer brands, we all have high expectations of that experience, so why isn't it the same from a candidate brand perspective? One of our customers, Qantas, is an iconic brand and, and we all have high expectations about what level of service we want. So why shouldn't that experience be mirrored as you go through the candidate experience? I think data, I think reality is that data's been around forever in every other part of organisations, you know, CRMs, uh, uh, obviously driving sales, look at the likes of a Salesforce. I think HR is a bit too enamoured by systems. Personally, I'm not a big believer in HRIS as the salvation for whatever it is that you're trying to solve for. Everyone seems to think that it's going to deliver amazing capability and all the employees are going to be sitting on Workday and, uh, and SAP. I, I don't believe that that's the reality. So how do you actually give them something that's going to make them learn and make, some, make it feel really meaningful to them? Um, so I'd love to see HR be a little bit more best of breed and really think what is it that I'm trying to do by introducing the system. We all need to know what people are paid and where they are and how many FTU we've got, but do we really need to invest 300 bucks a seat, you know, to, to do that? So I think I've done a bit of an about-face there. You know, culture is obviously really important, but I think sometimes organisations can get too drawn into that. You know, what's the end? Like, to what end are we trying to analyse culture? and build the right culture. And, you know, one of the things I've learned from Booty, who's worked in environments which do just that, is actually for a lot of organisations, they don't really change their engagement. It pretty much stays within a range. And fundamentally, the way you change culture and capability is through who you hire. Um, it's very hard to shift capability of, a, of an organisation. You know, the only one I can think top-down, large, global scale, where they've really successfully changed the culture is Microsoft. And there you've got a fundamentally different CEO who's almost like, you know, the difference between Trump and Obama in terms of how they lead. Um, and there's lots of, you know, visual signals. There's lots of other signposts. I think he's done an extraordinary job of really shaping a very different mindset and a different set of values um, within an enormous organisation. But in my experience, I don't see many who are really able to do that. So if you can find a way 
to identify the DNA of people, you know, and I think increasingly it's coming down to values and soft skills. BCG was all about hire for values, train for skills. I think increasingly in a world where so many roles are being disrupted and there's so much uncertainty, that's what you've got to solve for because you don't know what else to solve for. And for me, that's a really exciting bit is how do you get to the DNA of people? How do you understand what their true values and beliefs and traits are and help them find the best role for them and help the organisation find people who match what they need? It, it, it's kind of breaking out of the mould of job title, experience being the defining lead indicators, but actually coming down to something that's far more intrinsic and, to be honest, quite invisible. I love the reference to the Microsoft CEO on there too. I think Satya Nadella is incredible. And if you haven't read his book, it's well worth reading in terms of the, the journey, just his philosophy, but certainly some of the early stage journey of what he's trying to do at Microsoft. It's a really uh, completely different flip to the Gates-led era mm. and, and mm. post. Um, I'm interested, I know one of the topics you're fascinated by is talent, full stop, and this notion of how much of it's made, how much of it is to environment. Where, where's your thinking at on the topic of talent at the moment? What's your view? Well, it's another thing that Betty and I talk a little bit about, which is, you know, how much is your embedded DNA? I, I think this, just from my own experience um, of being one of four and also having three kids is obviously your environment matters, but I do think there's something really core that's defined at the outset, you know, um, and uh, I, I certainly think you can take charge and um, shape that. Um, but I think there's a sort of a core underlying set of traits that you're that you're kind of born with. Maybe that's a bit controversial, and uh, uh, the environment can either accentuate that in a positive way or, or not. Um, so I think the you know, we're all on a journey again to, to, to be really self-aware and understand ourselves. The more that you can understand yourself, the more you can make the right choice about where you want to place your, you know, your bet. Um, but it's the same as choosing your partner as it is choosing your workplace, right? Which is, we're not very good at choosing partners because 40% of us are divorced. So how do you actually start to be more considered, dare I say, use data in that decision as much as you use data around, you know, where, where to actually go and work? Um, I'm waiting for someone to come up with that product because I think it'll go gangbusters. I'm trying to think what the, the... Well, I suppose you're not suggesting Tinder and the like are data-driven <laughs> platforms there, though in theory there's loosely an algorithm behind it. Um, yeah, I think... Well, there's a fantastic book written by the founder of OkCupid um, called Dataclism, which actually talks about um, people's behaviours in terms of dating uh, tendencies and the difference between what they say and what they actually do. Um, there's enormous richness in the likes of what goes into Google searches. If you've read, there's another book called Everybody Lies, which is the fact that everybody lies, that what we say when we respond to polls is totally different to what we actually believe, and the way that you really validate that is by looking at what goes into Google, which is the ultimate source of truth around of the human psyche. That you know, There's no more data, bigger data lake than there is in Google. So I, I just think that's all really you know, fascinating, and to me that just reinforces that if you can bring that to life, if you can bring that to the top for people and, and give them that information and that data, you know, wow, that's amazingly empowering. Love that. Got some new books for the reading list. Uh, now, you've got th three kids you mentioned. Uh, when you talk to them about their future and the way they need to even conceptually think about careers, because with 17-year-olds now in this country, we're talking to them about the 18-plus careers they're going to have over the course of their lifetime and this dramatically different world of work that they're going to be in to their parents. What advice do you give them about uh, kind of what they need to empower themselves with to be able to navigate that? So I, I think experience matters more than education. I don't know if I should say that, given I've had the benefit of doing three degrees, but, um, you know, my son finished, he's taken a year off, he's not doing very much, but if he's doing something in terms of gaining experiences, whether that's working in the local shop or 
um, helping in any way. I just think you learn from that. I think that, um, not that I regret any of the time I spent studying, but you know, in the US I think one in four don't have college degrees now, and so how will they find jobs and how will we actually find them? You know, there is something around just live and learn through those experiences. I think, you know, what I say to my kids is you can delude yourself into thinking that you're learning through watching YouTube videos, but you don't really know until you apply it. And so in whatever sector it is, whether you're, you know, volunteering on a kibbutz or you're working in the local bottle shop, I just think you're learning. You know, you're learning life stuff. You're learning about yourself. You're learning about relationships. You're learning about connection. Um, and I think also just in terms of dealing with the challenges of technology, the more people have connections, I think the more you're, you're kind of, um, you know, um, protecting yourself against things like depression and mental health issues. And I see that with, with, my, with my kids and their friends. So for me, it's, you know, go for experiences. And I don't think there's any rush to find that job and, you know, get that goddamn mortgage and sort of lock yourself down. I think, um, you know, I'd, I would really want my kids to sort of explore the universe, explore themselves um, and, you know, not box themselves into any, any one thing. You mentioned it's all great listening to these really brilliant ideas, but the rubber meets the road when you actually start doing them. And until that point, we're not mm. getting a different result. Um, I am obsessed with the topic of habits and, you know, the notion that we are what we repeatedly do. What are some of those nuggets that you've taken, um, either maybe by observation of one of your bosses, from something you've learned somewhere, be it a book or a podcast, that you've applied for yourself and have gotten a, a tremendous result out of? Like, what are you, mm. some of your really mm. kind of keystone habits? So I think um, I... I, I... I don't know why I did it. I went to a Tony Robbins conference a few years ago, and 10 years ago I would have been hugely cynical about it, but actually, have you ever been? Yeah, I have. He's amazing. It's awesome. He's yeah. incredible. I mean, his energy for someone who's 60, phenomenal. I highly advise it. All Everyone day, there was sorry. like, yeah. Um, and uh, what he talks about is consistency, not intensity. And, you know, I just keep coming back to that, whether it's around exercise, whether it's around reading, whatever the habits are. So I try and, I try and do that. Um, I think something I picked up is um, from a, a friend of mine who is in a you know big role and seems to make time for it is to just meet with someone you don't know as often as you can, mm. whether that's someone within a business if you're in a large business or whether it's someone from the external environment. But you know, relish every opportunity that someone gives you to say, can you help me with something? Because I really think in, in in life that you know you give and you'll get, um, and you start to see that play back the older you get. Um, but if you can sit down with someone, whatever they're doing, whatever their background, whatever their needs, I just think that's, uh, you know, you're lucky um, because someone has chosen to give an hour of their time to you and you're going to get something out of that and they're going to get a huge amount out of that. So I think making it a regular habit to just engage with people that you don't know because, you know, we all think that our worlds are really disparate and diverse, but actually I think they're pretty small. Um, and so if we can reach out beyond our normal networks and normal reference points, I think you're, you know, you're doing yourself and that individual, um, a, 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 you know, a real advantage. I love that. There's a, a quote that, you know, that, that gets thrown around a lot. I actually don't think it has any basis in psychology, but that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time around. But I love that notion of just <laughs> taking that, even if that has absolutely no grounding in psychology, and the psychologist in the room will let me know. Um, but thinking about that idea of, you know, who do I spend the most time around professionally and how yeah. diverse are those inputs? Mm. And is there the opportunity to bring someone in this week or every week that can help challenge the perspective with which I'm viewing this opportunity or challenge or the way that I'm dealing with this situation? Because mm. these ideas are great, but what I love about what you just talked about is it's pragmatic and everyone listening to this can take that up and do it 
and can get benefit out of it mm. on a regular basis. And when you sit down with people, uh, and this can be on a, a regular basis or this can be one that's sort of your your power trump card when you need it, what's your your go-to question in terms of the thing that reveals the nugget or perhaps the, the question that you ask in certain situations where you really find it gets to the heart of the issue or opens people up in a way that they might not have uh, otherwise been prepared to go? Uh, look, I'm, I'm a nuisance for asking questions. I had a feeling you uh, might be. <laughs> I don't know that there's one specific question, but that fantastic book by Ricardo Semler, you know, who wrote, I think it was in the 70s, um, Brazilian entrepreneur, and he always talked about ask why three times. Um, and then you'll really get to the core of what's going on. And I think it's partly my consulting training and just my natural curiosity and also being in environments both REA and here where you're constantly triaging about is this the right thing for us to be doing now? Is this the right thing I should be doing for this hour? Because, you know, you're, 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 you've got so little resources and you have to make the best decisions you can make on imperfect information. And so to just go, why are we doing this? Like, to what end? What value are we offering? Who's it going to benefit? And I just think that's a, you know, a kind of a muscle that you build, particularly in business, because um, it's too easy to get caught along with, you know, a trend, right? And even for our customers to say, tell me why you want this product. Um, so I, I think that discovery through really being curious and exploring it um, because people don't often think about it. They just go from, you know, observation to need. But actually making something really successful means you're really grounded in the why and everyone around you can really articulate that together with you and then you know you've got that sort of collective engagement to make it to make it work. One of the things I feel like we're talking about a, a lot more now is, is disruption and change and all these forces that we, you know, are seemingly getting quicker by the second. Uh, and in the context of that sort of environment, um, one of the demands I think is increasingly being placed on leaders is how do you keep your uh, finger on the pulse of what it is that's going on in the world and trying to keep ahead of the innovation curve and doing your best to kind of, um, you know, lead where trends are going. Mm. I'm interested for where you go for inspiration. Where do you go to be inspired and to stay kind of at the curve of where things are going? What companies do you follow? What do you intentionally read? What do you expose yourself to on a regular basis? So that you're stretching yourself, but you're also trying to, um, I guess, watch where you believe markets are moving and trends are heading. So one thing I think is is just having space. And uh, I probably don't do enough of it, but just having, you know, regular time in your diary, which isn't filled with anything. Um, I remember speaking to George Frazes, I don't know if he's still at the NAB, a senior executive ages ago, and he said he would go to the MCA. I used to live in Sydney and go to the MCA when he just felt like he needed to get some clarity of thinking, right, you know, faced with a difficult business decision. And I thought that's a really interesting, you know, it's a beautiful environment. Um, you're stimulated by what you see in front. You're forced to think about usually what you're seeing across from you. So, you know, whether it's just going for a run or just space, but I think we can crowd our minds too much with just information, especially as we wake up in the morning, we flick through our various feeds. I probably have go-to people who I just you know, adore and admire and envy in terms of their brilliance and their way of articulating issues. So there's a newsletter called Red F by a guy called Jason Hershorn. Um, it's media, tech, it's a bit of everything, but it's like a curated cross-selection of really interesting articles, mostly, dare I say, from American journos. You know, the reality is 250 million people, the quality of journalism is pretty exceptional. I've got one more question from my end, and that's one I like to finish all my podcasts with, because uh, we're passionate with what we do at Coffee Pods about taking ideas and turning them into action. If you could leave people listening with one call to action, an encouragement after hearing everything you've shared to go out there and do something different or try something, what would you like to encourage them to go do? 
I think I'd say ask yourself the question, what's on the other side of this? What's on the other side of failure? Like if I do this and it doesn't work, what happens? And what you'll find is actually not much. Um, and you'll inevitably learn from it. And in my experience, the hardest things in life, the most difficult things personally and professionally are what you learn the most from. So, you know, it's to kind of look into those opportunities and uh, to really question, is there anything really bad that's going to happen from me doing this and it not working out? Bob, I am very grateful for your generosity in sharing um, not only about your own career, but your insights and the lessons you've learned along the way. Um, I really appreciate the openness with which you've been prepared to do that and the candour, because I think that's one of the, the great benefits we can, we can have as listeners to have someone that's prepared to put it on the table and talk in a real and honest way about what you've been through and the lessons you've learned and how you navigated it. So thank you for, for sharing like you did today. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.